0: Hello and welcome to The Unseen Shows, a new podcast series by Visual Artists Ireland. My name is Joanne Laws and I'm Features Editor of the Visual Artists News Sheet. This podcast series features interviews with artists whose exhibitions have been either cancelled, postponed or sealed behind closed doors due to the closure of all cultural venues in March in response to the coronavirus pandemic. The continued absence of physical encounters with art in public spaces has prompted us to find other ways of communicating with artists about their work. We feel that the distinctive pace and sensibility of the audio format provides a welcome break from excessive screen time that many of us are experiencing during lockdown. Given that we are disseminating these podcasts without accompanying visuals or moving image, technically these exhibitions will remain unseen However, we hope these conversations will illuminate in other ways, making visible the rich inquiries that underpin each artist's wider practice. The fifth podcast in this series features an interview with Gary Coyle, whose most recent solo exhibition, Dreaming Different Dreams, was presented at the Kevin Cavanagh Gallery from the 5th of March to the 25th of April. I spoke to Gary via Zoom in May about the core themes of his practice and his approach to exhibition making. Uh, I suppose I could start by asking you first about your exhibition at the Kevin Cavanagh Gallery, um, which was called Dreaming Different Dreams. This show closed after a week due to the lockdown, so maybe I could ask you just to outline some of the artworks featured in in the show and maybe your overall thematic approach to exhibition making.
1: It is... um... Drawing exhibition. It's got two types of drawings. It's got my usual heavily worked charcoal drawings mm-hmm. and they are mostly unframed and pinned over a gallery size drawing of, um, of mountains which are printed on vinyl like wallpaper and pasted up on the wall. And the, the digital, it's a the wallpaper drawing is a digital drawing. It's made with a drawing pad and Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And, and they're in a dialogue with one another.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, drawing is obviously really central to your practice. And as you say, this often involves kind of large scale wall drawings, with installation being really important uh, to your exhibition making approach. Um, so I just, I suppose I wanted to ask you about your drawing process which often involves charcoal and mark-making and pattern and erasure. Um, and I also wanted to ask you about your values around the hand-drawn in terms of authenticity and also how drawing as a medium interacts with other strands of your practice, such as photography and, and spoken word performance.
1: I trained as a sculptor, and I still see myself as a sculptor, even though I haven't made a sculpture since I finished my MA in 1996. And so... I'm kind of when I when I finished my my MA in London in the in the mid 90s I found myself stuck up on the 16th floor of a tower block and I'd gone from a kind of a Rolls-Royce of a studio with assistants and technicians and every machine you might possibly want
0: mm-hmm.
1: to nothing and so all I had was a piece of paper and a pencil so I started to draw and I never intended for it to to, to take over like this but it has so I'd always intended to go back to making sculpture or, you know, but anyway, I got kind of mired, for want of a better word, here, or got sucked into being obsessed about drawing. Mm-hmm. So I, I... So, but in terms of the drawing itself, I suppose what's very important to me is uh, is rubbing out, erasing, with both digital and charcoal. Yeah. And it's uh, because chance and accident happen, and so I'll, um, I'll spend a week maybe drawing something and then I'll just in 10 minutes destroy it and draw it all over again. And sometimes when that happens, not always, it'll take on a life of its own and it'll kind of go in directions that I never thought that it would. And I find that kind of exciting. So, I mean, I do start, I do have a starting point, but I have no idea where things are going to end up. And I think that people that do say I, was being, I had an interview last week, actually, <laughs> over Zoom, and I said the same thing. People who say, oh, I know exactly what I wanted when I started, I always think, what's the point? So I think that there is a sense of adventure uh, and that awful word journey, and you start off somewhere and you don't know where it's going to end up.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of um, your wider practice, is there a correlation or a, di- a direct relationship between drawing and other media um, even your photographs or your spoken word performance? Well, I suppose
1: what drawing does, it, it helps you to see. You know, I, personally, I mean, I know I probably have a very old-fashioned act. I think drawing, to me, is, is key uh, to art making. And I, I don't mean like drawing well or in an academic fashion, but I just think, it, it, you know, it, 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 it does something to your brain, <laughs> mm-hmm. basically and you know you look in things in a different way and I, I, I really do believe that and so I, I think that drawing has made me very observant and uh, I'm not kind of blowing my own trumpet here people I know will often remark on how observant I am mm-hmm. and I think well that's my job and my job is to see things you know and I think that drawing really helps with that
0: Um, And so I wanted to ask you, uh, returning to the actual exhibition and Kevin Kavanagh, one of the kind of ontological positions that you explore in this this exhibition um, relates to the sublime, specifically theorizations of Edmund Burke, um, which consider the beautiful as something well-formed and aesthetically pleasing, whereas the sublime has the power to compel and destroy us. Um, and of course, it's well established that a shift away from beauty towards the sublime marks the transition from the neoclassical to romantic era. So I suppose I wanted to ask you if the sublime is a reoccurring kind of metaphysical concept in your work.
1: It's funny. Uh, I Before I signed on to this meeting, I reread a little bit. I, I, I found something that I'd written down from, from uh, Adorno when it said, uh, the sublime has been corrupted beyond recognition by the mumbo-jumbo of the high priests of art religion. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think there's some truth in that as well. I mean, I am fascinated by the sublime. And even though, I mean, it's never really gone away. uh, It's never really disappeared. And then also I swim in the sea every day. And I think Mm -hmm. it's very easy for people to... um, to think it's outmoded or old-fashioned and then you are swimming in a really heavy swell <laughs> with massive waves and mm-hmm. you think, oh, my God, actually, there is something in this sublime stuff, you know, uh, and I can just, you know, wipe this out and we are so insignificant in the face of nature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what's happened in the last two months is is proof of that. Yes, you know, um I think the sublime is back with a bang uh, in a way, I, I prefer the Gothic because it is trashier and it is more knowing and it is more ironic, uh, and it's more fun. and it's kind of i said I, I wrote another one, you know the sublime outside like, gothic is is the sublime's trashier, more unruly and uh, more knowing uh, sibling. So I'm probably more into the gothic than I am into the sublime, some kind of poe face by the sublime at the same time.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the gothic, actually, and the kind of manifestations of the gothic within your practice. Yeah. Uh, previous bodies of work have focused on woodland scenes, um, but there is a sense that these pastoral landscapes are kind of uh, fraught with ominous or menacing atmospheres, and maybe they're subject to some form of dormant violence. Um, so I suppose I want to ask you um, if you have any particular artistic or literary or cinematic influences uh, in terms of the Gothic.
1: I mean, I've got I've got loads of them. Um, you know, The Night of the Hunter is one of my favourite films with Charles mm-hmm. Lawson. Uh, there's just there's you know there's there's just I mean, as a as a kid growing up, um, I used to watch. Hammer uh, movies on a Friday night. <laughs> which is just fantastic and so camp and so over the top and just brilliant. And, uh, you know, there's there's a knowingness and a playfulness about the Gothic that there isn't in the sublime. And that's mm. what I like about it. And, and you know, when you're in those kind of earlier Gothic drawings, there's a, there's a bloke in a tracksuit. And I said, it's like, it's part kind of Dublin neer part Philip Guston... Uh, you know, part a rock and figure from from Friedrich. So it's kind of a mashup of all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so I don't take myself too seriously, basically. Uh, you know, and uh, hopefully there's there's a playfulness uh, in what I do, uh, even though I'm deadly serious about it. And you know, there's a, there's a knowingness and a playfulness in it. I hope some people are far too serious. It's only art, after all. You know, so um, <laughs> even though I devout... <laughs> hundreds of hours to put in a show together to still, you know, it is only art.
0: Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about your titles, actually, on, on, on the serious note. Uh, sometimes some of your titles are quite somber. Uh, Hello, Darkness and The Black Dog uh, would be examples. Um, so I was wondering if you're, if you're kind of thinking about um, historical interrogations of melancholia, such as those pioneered during Romanticism.
1: Somewhat, but also the other part of "Hello Darkness, is Hello Darkness, my old friend." I'm very comfortable in the in the dark, and I, I suppose. Um, but I should also go back a little to the to your previous question. Growing up in Dunleary, and most of my stuff is set there, and some very dark things happened to me growing up as a child. Not I, I'm you know not personally, but around me, and I think that's left a mark on me. So. There's also that and the first one-man show I did was uh, Death and Delirium, and it's about all these various different deaths or mostly deaths that have uh, that happened to me growing up and uh, and the fact that I'm fascinated by that and that's all kind of tied in with the with the locale so I'd regularly walk through a part uh, which I've written about when I was when I was five uh, and in primary school and I was playing with two friends of mine and my brother and uh, they went off and I wanted to join them. My brother said they can't go with them and they went off and they promptly drowned in the pond five minutes later.
0: Oh my goodness. And
1: uh, so stuff like that. And so I regularly still walk through the park where I met them. And so there's stuff like that <laughs> constantly. And, you know, not in a... In a so, you know, my family lived there for a very long time even though I no longer live there I still go out there almost every single day Mm -hmm. so there is that sense that also kind of percolates through it and whereas you get that in kind of in rural Ireland the people are connected with the landscape and with the land you don't get it so much in in urban areas Mm -hmm. so there's also that
0: um, yeah, I suppose the, f- the final question I wanted to ask you relates to your source imagery. You seem to be drawn quite a lot from a wide range of sources um, and yeah. rich, rich art historical insights, as you've already mentioned, uh, Philip Guston. So abstract expressionism through to kind of romanticism and Rococo. And these sit alongside leanings from contemporary culture popular culture, advertising and the internet. And in fact, some of your most recent drawings memorialise the kind of narcissism of digital culture with aphorisms such as FOMO. Um, So maybe to finish up, um, I could ask you to discuss the circulation or the juxtaposition of historic and modern influences within your work.
1: I... Studied art history as well as doing fine art simultaneously. And I am an omnivore uh, when it comes to art. And I kind of find it... I remember I was uh, at the Basel Art Fair eight years ago. It's the biggest art bun fight on the planet in Basel. Mm. And it's an... Have you ever been? It's an antheap. And I went down to the local Kunsthalle. It's a really, really impressive art museum. And it was empty. And you have fifty or hundred thousand art buffs, and nobody bothered to go down to look. And some of the stuff was absolutely there's Holbeins, and there's all sort of incredible stuff down there. Bocklands, really serious painting. And it seems to me that a lot of most people who are interested in contemporary art have little or no interest in older art, and I find that kind of astonishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do. And and even in terms of having stuff to steal or to borrow. Uh, I used to teach. People seems to be endlessly retreading the, uh, the same old shite over the last fifty years, and mm-hmm. I just find that I find that bizarre. And so, um, I could, I well, before this happened, I'd go over to London every six weeks to look at art, and I would, you know, I would see all the contemporary galleries and go to all the museums, and I I would happily <laughs> look at it all, and so. That would happen. And also, I'm very into popular culture. I mean, I, I love my magazines and my trash and, <laughs> uh, and my pop music and my pop culture. And so I, you know, happily eat it all. And, uh, and I find, but I do really find it bizarre that, that people are madly into visual art and visual culture wouldn't know, wouldn't go see a Bonar exhibition. I mean, at the moment, what's killing me is there's a major exhibition of Tishan on at the moment in the National Gallery in London. That's right, but, yeah. Uh, he's just like one of the top five artists that ever lived. Mm-hmm. And the people, you go in and there's no young people there, no contemporary artists there. I find that just nuts. Mm-hmm. I find it so myopic. Uh, maybe people don't have an in into it, or they never figured out how to like it, but I just, it's bound to my soul, and um, if I don't get to see, I know it's going to four different places over the next two years, and you know, there are a series of paintings painted for the um, Philip IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, most powerful man in the world at the time, I mean, I would kill to see that exhibition
0: yeah we might uh wrap up actually uh right. thank you very much for your time today and for these really generous insights um into your work
1: thank you very much it's very nice to talk to uh, you, joanne and uh, hopefully everything is is going well with you and yours
0: you have been listening to the unseen shows a podcast series by visual artist ireland these podcast interviews have been published every two weeks on soundcloud Where possible, condensed versions of some of these interviews will be published in the Visual Artist News Sheet. Special thanks to our production editor, Christopher Steenson, for audio editing and the music for the podcast.